As I think about my, my camping experience in high school, college, grad school, I loved backpacking. And then we had kids, and it moved more to a tent. And then as they got older, it moved to an RV. And then as they got older, it moved to a hotel. <laughs> to the point that the only kind of camping I would do is a hotel. But can you imagine camping for 40 years? Uh, that's what the people of Israel experienced in the wilderness. And every year, they would commemorate that experience of camping in the wilderness for those 40 years in a particular festival. It was called the Feast of the Tabernacles. It's where they commemorated the Exodus, that incredible experience of God freeing the people of Israel from bondage in Egypt and then taking them through the wilderness and then bringing them to the Promised Lamb. Um, as we continue our series in the Gospel of John, we reach chapter seven and eight, where it is all about the Feast of the Tabernacle. It's all about this event. And Jesus speaks into the event and creates our own exodus. Uh, there were four elements of the exodus that stand out. The revelation of the one true God, the freeing of a people in bondage, the provision of God to sustain them, and the presence of God to lead them. In John 7 and 8, Jesus enters into that exodus himself, and then in doing so, bids us to enter into our own exodus. And in those two chapters, Jesus will reveal himself as God. He will free us from our bondage. He'll provide for our deepest need, and he promises us his presence throughout all things. Now, last week, we looked at Jesus promises his presence. We looked at how he provides for our deepest needs. And this morning, I want to look at how he reveals himself as God and frees us from our bondage. But before we do that, would you join me in a word of prayer? Lord God, as we come now to your word, uh, there's so much in these two chapters, Lord, that um, bid us to enter into the word and become part of the living word of God. And Lord, as you call us to our own exodus, I pray that we would do so bravely, but trusting wholly in you. And I pray we would not hold back. I pray we would not long for our days in Egypt. I pray we would look ahead and forward at where Jesus leads us and what Jesus leads us out of. And so, Lord, meet us, we pray at this time. In Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, amen. amen. But before we look at these two uh, other elements of the Exodus, I want to do a little side note on something that happens in these chapters as well that I, I think it's significant and we need to know that. Uh, and that is the increasing hostility toward Jesus. It becomes incredibly evident in these two chapters uh, that the leadership in Jerusalem is becoming more and more frustrated with him to the point that they move from covert to overt attacks on him. Um, looking at verse 30 of John chapter seven. At this, the Pharisees tried to seize Jesus, but no one laid a hand on him because, this, because his time had not yet come. Still many in the crowd put their faith in him, and they said, when Christ comes, will, will he do more miraculous signs than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. 
Now the temple guards were priests and Levites that were charged with the security of not only the temple building, but the temple mount as well. And they were stationed throughout the temple mount and throughout the uh, temple itself to watch the crowds to make sure that no one created um, uh, an issue there. And so the Pharisees and the priests send these temple guards to arrest Jesus. And I love what happens next. In verse 45, finally the temple guards went back to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? Well, no one ever spoke like this man does. Can you imagine what they're feeling? All of a sudden they realize that "Ah, we can't arrest this man. I mean, no one talks like he does. No one says the things he does. Now we have to go back and say, why? No one ever spoke the way this man spoke, the guards declared. You mean he's deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted. Has any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? No. But this mob that knows nothing of the law, there's a curse on them. Wow, great attitude toward people, right? That's how they look at the, at the people, as a mob who have a curse on them. I mean, compare that to how Jesus felt about the crowds. The Bible says they took compassion on them. And he healed them, and he fed them. Well, that didn't work to send temple guards, so now they turn to insults. In chapter 8, verse 18, it says, Jesus says, I am the one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Then they asked him, where is your Father? That's an interesting question. Why would you ask that? One commentator said that, Most likely, what they're referring to is the story of Jesus' birth. John doesn't include the story of Jesus' birth, but he does include in this uh, the sense that the community knew that there was something about Jesus' birth that was unique. They most likely knew the story of the virgin birth. But the Pharisees discounted it. They looked at it as um, a way to cover up his mother's promiscuity. And so when they ask him, where is your father? What they're saying is, you don't even know who your rear father is. In fact, that really shows itself in verse 41. We are not illegitimate children, they said. In other words, implying we're not illegitimate, but you are. Trying to cast dispersion on him, trying to get the crowd to see that, that uh, he came out of an immoral background. Now, Jesus doesn't fall for the bait, isn't doesn't try to engage with him in that way at all. So then they just blatantly start to insult him. The Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? You are a Samaritan and demon-possessed. You know, every culture has its insults. I don't recommend this, But I started to look through, I I Googled, what are the insults of other nations? Oh, my. (laughs) The ones that I can share with you uh, are this. In um, Spain, they have a saying that goes, um, he combs light bulbs. He combs light bulbs. It's a way of saying, he's so stupid, he thinks he can comb the hair of a light bulb. Uh, the Italians will say, among other th- insults, um, 
The Italians will say, well, he's nothing but a big bucket. Uh, as a way of saying, he, he knows a lot of stuff, but he has absolutely no social life. No one wants to be around him because he's nothing but a big trash bucket. Knows a lot of stuff, but has no social life. We used to call them geeks, <laughs> right? Until we realized they're the only ones who could program our VCR or DVR. They're the only ones that could fix our computer that we absolutely now need and rely on. They're the only ones that understand our phone. And they're the ones that are running huge companies, making a fortune, and they control the world. <laughs> Suddenly, to be a geek is a good thing. In the first century, to call someone a Samaritan is to say that you're a half-breed. To say to someone you're demon-possessed is to say you're crazy, you're insane. Look at how Jesus answers. I love the way he answered them. He says, I'm not possessed by a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I am not possessed by a demon. What did he leave out? Samaritan, exactly. Jesus does not deny being a Samaritan. I love that. What Jesus is saying is, I'm okay if you call me a Samaritan, or a Greek, or a Roman, or a Gentile, or a Persian, or a Babylonian. You can call me whatever you want because these are people. And these are God's people. And these are people that need God. He doesn't look down on them. He doesn't consider them um, half-breeds or any other horrible view of a person. Jesus says, if you want to call me a Samaritan, I am fine with that. Because I love the world and I came to save the world. I love that he says, I'm not demon-possessed, but I'm okay with being a Samaritan. I love that. The sad fact is, then, a, there's a great many people in the church of North America that think of people the way the Pharisees do. I find that terribly sad. And I hope and pray that's never true of Centerpoint. I'm not possessed by a demon, but I am a Samaritan and a Gentile and a Jew and a Greek. I am for the world and I'm with the world. I love that. So let's go back to the Exodus. In chapter eight, Jesus picks up that, that theme of the Exodus and reveals uh, his tie to it in this way. He said, even as he spoke, many put their faith in him. And to the Jews who believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold my teachings, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Really? You are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How Jesus didn't roll his eyes at them and said, really? Seriously? They are celebrating the Feast of Tabernacle, right? Which commemorates what? The Exodus out of Egypt and slavery and bondage. I don't know how Jesus didn't start laughing. We are Abraham's descendants and we've never been slaves of anyone. Oh, except the Egyptians for 10 generations. Oh, um, and then there's the Babylonians, 587 to 539 BC, 
who were then taken over by the Persians, and Israel became a vassal state to the Persians, and then they were taken over by the Greeks until 166 BC, and then they had this little sliver in history of self-rule from 166 to 63 BC, and then there were the Romans from 63 BC to 313. Basically, the Romans never left. You have never been the slave of anyone. The person that was saying that is around, uh, this took place around 30, 33 AD. He's looking back at 600 years, at least, and of those 600 years, from the Babylonians forward, Israel has been enslaved for 500 of those years. As the saying goes, denial isn't just a river in Egypt, right? <laughs> I love how uh, the cartoon Calvin and Hobbes put it. Uh, Calvin said this, it's not denial, I'm just very selective about the reality I accept. And there are a lot of people that live that way today, amen? Including the person that said, we've never been enslaved. You have been nothing but enslaved. But Jesus isn't talking about political slavery and bondage. He's talking about personal bondage. He said this, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Just as Yahweh called the people of Israel out of Egypt, so Jesus calls us out of our Egypt, out of our bondage, and out of our slavery. And we'll look at that in a little bit, what it means personally to do that. And then the last tie to the Exodus is, is probably the most startling, and that is the question of who is God. Jesus said to the leaders, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, said the Jews to him, and you've seen Abraham. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. Jesus uses the exact same words that Yahweh used when he revealed himself to Moses and when he revealed himself to the Israelites. Moses said, who are you? Who do I say you are when I go to them? And remember, for 10 generations, the Israelites had been under Egyptian rule and they had adopted the Egyptians' gods. Moses wants to know, of all the Egyptian gods, which one are you? And Yahweh says, I am not those. Those are not gods. There's only one God. I am is the Lord. The leadership knew exactly what Jesus was saying. He said at, the, at this point, John says, they picked up stones to stone him because blasphemy is a charge that carries the death penalty. And they feel that Jesus is blaspheming here. He's equating himself with Yahweh, and that's exactly what Jesus is doing. I, I, I find it so interesting that Jesus didn't say, I am the Messiah, as he did in chapter four when the woman asked him. He didn't say, I am the prophet that Moses said would come. He looks back at this backdrop of the Feast of Tabernacles with the greatest moment when God revealed himself. And Jesus says, as Yahweh said, I am, so too. I am. I am. 
So let's look at how Jesus then speaks into our exodus. As, uh, as Jesus uses the Feast of the Tabernacles as his backdrop for what he says to us, he enters into the exodus and he calls us out of our own in freeing us from our bondage. And the problem is that so many of us don't realize that sin not only separates us from God, but it blinds us and it binds us. I poked fun at the, the Pharisee that said, we've never been enslaved. But wouldn't you agree that many of us, many of us don't think we're enslaved to sin? That we're blind to its power and its control? You know, we'll say, well, you know what? Everyone makes mistakes, but we'll make them again and again and again. Or we'll say, well, you know, at least I'm not like so-and-so, as though their sin is worse than our sin. Or we'll say, um, I can control it. I can stop. I don't need God to help me. I can do this. And we can't stop on our own. I mean, as Jesus said, the only way you're going to be free is if I set you free. Every sin in our life has the potential to be life-controlling. I mean, think about those sins in our life that are, are life-controlling. Uh, there are sins that, uh, that physically control us. Chemical dependency, alcohol dependency, pornography, even foods. You're thinking, foods? The American people have uniquely turned food into an emotional sedative. And it controls us. Emotionally, we let anger control us. We let anxiety and fear control us. We, we, we let hate control us. And even the past can control us with unforgiveness or disappointment that something we hoped and prayed for never happened or bitterness. The past can become a, 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 an enslavement because of the unforgiveness or the disappointment or the bitterness. These are life-controlling sins that are often part of our lives today. Jesus said that it's the truth that will free you. If you hold to my teaching, you really are my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And that truth is Jesus. Later on, he'll say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so when Jesus says the truth will set you free, he's saying, I will set you free. If you believe in me, if you follow me, and you follow my teachings, I will set you free. It is the only way, the only way that we can be free of life-controlling sins. We can't do it on our own. And if you are trying, if you are trying to do this on your own, it isn't going to work. The only thing that works is Jesus. The only thing that works is Jesus. We're set free by the truth. And then Jesus declares, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. By using that to reveal himself, those two words, 
Jesus stands before the people and is basically saying, I am Yahweh. I am Yahweh. It's an incredible moment. And he leaves absolutely no question of who he is. And in fact, what Jesus is also saying in those words, I am, is that he is demanding the same loyalty that Yahweh demanded of the Israelites. Remember that when, when he brought them out of Egypt and he gave them the Ten Commandments? What was the first commandment? All right. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. When Jesus said, I am, he's declaring the exact same things. Jesus is saying, I am the Lord your God who brings you out of the bondage of your sins. You shall have no other gods before me. Jesus demands of us the same absolute loyalty. In fact, one theologian called it radical monotheism. That there exists in our life one God, just one. And nothing is to compete with that one God. Like the song we sang, I really appreciated uh, uh, that song that Paul taught us. You know, the earth will give you this, and the earth promises this, and the earth promises that. And so many of us, it's Jesus and that. Jesus says, no, 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 no. It's just Jesus alone. It's not Jesus and. As you think about your life, are there things in your life that share the throne with Jesus? Jesus demands absolute loyalty. That means he's before everything else. He is before your spouse. He is before your children. He is before your job. He is before your possessions. He is before your values. Your first nationality is the kingdom of heaven. Your second citizenship is an American, but your first, your first citizenship is the kingdom of God. Are you sharing your throne with Jesus and something else? When Jesus says, I am, he is declaring to us, I demand absolute loyalty because I am God. And you're to have no other gods but me. Is Jesus first in your life? Would you describe yourself this way? I am an sold out, all-in follower of Jesus Christ who loves the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, and with all my strength. I'm an all-out sold, I'm an all-in sold-out follower of Jesus. Can you say that about yourself? If you can't, honestly, if you can't, Jesus is inviting you out of your, your Egypt. He's the God of the Exodus for you. And he calls you to him. So, our Exodus, Jesus reveals himself as God. Jesus frees us from our bondage. Jesus provides our deepest need. And he promises us our presence.
Amen? Amen. So let's get out of Egypt. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, in this, um, in this moment of quiet, I pray that your spirit would brood over us in a very powerful way right now. And that each and every one of us will sense and feel the spirit. And so, Lord, keep us from lying. Keep us from deceiving ourselves. Keep us from denial. And Lord, where there is a life-controlling sin, I pray you'd free us. Lord God, I pray this morning for the person that's addicted to drugs. Whether that's prescription drugs or illegal, Lord God, they are amongst us, our brothers and sisters that are in bondage. I pray your spirit would speak to their heart and call them to be free. I pray, Lord God, for those who are addicted to alcohol. And I pray your spirit would call them out of their Egypt. For those that are addicted to pornography, Lord, free them, free them from it. For those of us who use food as an emotional sedative, Lord God, call us out. For those of us who have life-controlling sin with our emotions, we worry, we're anxious, we're afraid. God, free us from that bondage. And for those of us that are so tied to the past that it debilitates our presence, I pray, God, you'd free us. Free us from the memories of abuse. Free us from disappointment of what didn't happen. Free us from bitterness. Free us to forgive. Lord God, free us, we pray in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen.